It's Corpman, and the way I explain it is it, the, the P is not silent, but it's also not emphasized. Corpman. It's like the T in California. You know, we, we never use it in exactly. all the words that have a T in it. It's just always a soft T, right? You had me confused that there might be a T in California. No, 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 no. no. It's like the T in California. No one says it or drinks it. It's right before the C. What are you talking about? You, you don't write it that way? <laughs> <laughs> Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. Uh, my name is Nat Turney, and with me, as always, is my brother. Say hi, John. Do it. Hi, John. Hi, John. Hi, John. <laughs> you know you want to. This is the podcast we have lovingly called This Is Not Church, even though as we keep being reminded by some guests, it kind of is like church. It's just not like church as maybe you have come to know it. How about that? We can have church and not have church simultaneously. Anyway, our guest this time, I was going to say this afternoon, but you might be listening to this in the morning and who the hell am I to tell you what time of day it is, man? It's who morning I I here. Am? Yeah, it's afternoon here. <laughs> All right, but <laughs> it's somewhere. It's tomorrow. Dear God, <laughs> this is already just... Yep. All right, our guest today, let me get into the meat of this. Our guest today is Matthew J. Cortman. He's a rising biblical scholar, an itinerant preacher, and a theological arsonist. By the way, baller. I need that. I need that title in somewhere. I know uh, maybe in academic circles, that's not great, but a theological arsonist is great. Anyway, he's currently pursuing doctoral work in biblical studies at uh, the University of Birmingham. He's a recent graduate of Yale Divinity School, and he holds four bachelor's degrees in theology, archaeology, philosophy, and screenwriting. He's also an adjunct professor at La Sierra University. Let's see, he has traveled and excavated in Israel and Jordan and is proud to call San Diego, California his home. Matthew is the author of the book, Saying No to God, A Radical Approach to Reading the Bible Faithfully. And man, we're just so glad that you can be with us today. How are you, sir? Well, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be on the program with you and have this conversation, this not church, churchy sort of <laughs> yes. deconstructed conversation. Yes, and um, it. no, uh, it's it's just great to be here. And I'm definitely doing well, much better this morning now that I get to have a good chat with you too. Nice. Wow. I'm glad we overcame our our, uh, our earlier technological difficulties. Me um, too. We won't we won't tell people how it was fixed because we don't want to give any you know extra you know credit to a certain large um, technology corporation that doesn't need anything from us. But anyway, of course, not. Uh, <laughs> of course. Not. <laughs> anyway, hey, we uh, we man, we have a lot of questions and a lot of things to to get through. Um, first of all, I wanted to mention I just love. Uh, I, I don't know, I guess theological arsonist just kind of res resonates with me. Is that something that you had ascribed to yourself or had somebody kind of kind of given you that moniker? Oh, no, it was definitely a, something I ascribed to myself, but it was inspired, not out of whole cloth, but uh, Peter Rowland's I was gonna his say, work so on like, pyrotheology. Yeah, okay. So yeah. You, you're aware of Peter, obviously, then. Oh, yeah. So yeah. are you in sort of the same vein, you think? Um, you, well, uh, he endorsed the book. He's on the front cover. So. Nice. Okay, see, this, 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 thank you for showing how ill-prepared I am for this particular interview. Um, <laughs> first of all, I love Peter, and if you have access to him, we need him on the show, like, toot sweet. So Peter, I don't know who has man, access to him. Nobody seems to, man. He's, I'm not even sure he's a real person anymore, I, although I did, I did meet him once. So I can, I, guess I can confirm via the watching his YouTube lives that he's okay. in some large apartment building in downtown LA <laughs> gotcha. that is high enough up he looks over all the other skyscrapers. So <laughs> he's somewhere in there. Uh, so just look for the tall building. Right, right. <laughs> That's where you target. The, the tall building with the short man. Uh, the also, <laughs> look for comedy clubs that, that many people don't visit and right. you'll find an all-day seminar <laughs> with Peter in it. Uh, I've gone to one and it was an honor and deeply enriching and yeah, fun. Yeah, he's an amazing dude. I saw him uh, I saw him and Rob Bell together a couple of years ago in Austin when they were doing a thing. Um, they were touring around together. I wish and, they did uh, more now. Still. Man, I wish they did too. It was, <laughs> it was one of the best things I've ever seen. Um, and Peter, at the time, I had just sort of got become aware of him and uh, and what I was struck by was how tall Rob Bell is and how not tall Peter is. So when they're, when they're by each other, man, the contrast is striking. It's like, but anyway, I digress. So theological arsonist, what is it, in your own words, man, what, what, what does that mean to you? I think, um, you know, as a spinoff of what Rollins talks about with pyrotheology, which is sort of his 
his way of describing what Jacques Derrida described as deconstruction. But for him, it's pyrotheology. It's a way of describing burning instead of just deconstructing. But essentially, a theological arsonist in my own self-description just means that I like to set fires to sort of the uh, standard assumed orthodoxies. I'm not afraid to see if something will light up, uh, even though it's claimed it won't. And then, you know, I like to poke around. But the thing is, is that as much as I'm a theological arsonist, I'm also deeply reconstructive. So I don't like just burning everything down. I deeply enjoy the aspect of thinking through again what can rise from its ashes or what uh, what still stays at the end. So it sounds edgy, it's it's fun, and I definitely get perceived, I think, that way as sort of always on the edge, always willing to, to, to poke a hole. But my real goal in poking is to try to figure out how to make something stronger or to think through it better. So oftentimes, even though um, I'm perceived as, you know, like, say the title, saying no to God. Sounds like I'm very much poking and going to like, you know, uh, what was it? I was just at a at the Society of Biblical Literature meetings and I was having uh, lunch with a group of scholars. And when I said my book's title, uh, several of them were like, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> they were like, wait, what? And like, they're somewhat liberal. I mean, like they're not, they're yeah. not, you know, and that was the funny thing when I first, I tried pitching the book um, one time to HarperCollins and they and one of the people there, like their eyes lit up when they heard the title because I was still in the midst of, of finishing it. And they, they they heard the title and they're like, "Why on earth would we say no to God?" And I was like, <laughs> "Oh wait, you're yeah. at you yeah. you're asking me that like right right we yeah. Collins, like Harper one like <laughs> <laughs> like publisher of John Shelby Spong and and other you are shocked by the title. Okay, well I guess I must have hit a nerve because it seems yeah. to seems to trigger both sides. So people hear that title and they think, okay, you know, this guy is 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 really provocative. But then the uh, funny part is how many conservatives have secretly told me, oh yeah, this idea is not that provocative. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, you know, that's something that I think is kind of, um, it sounds provocative, I'm a theological arsonist. And at the same time, what I end up doing with my burning somehow seems to leave people feeling like, oh, well, this is how it was supposed to be. Like, yeah. yes, of course, good thing we set that fire. And that's the way I think good pyrotheology should be. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Do you find yourself in a similar camp then? Would you would you put yourself in the same sort of category as, um, say, like uh, Greg Boyd or, uh, um, say, Thomas Ord, who might find themselves in like the open relational theology camp? Or are you somewhere else entirely? So it's, it's really interesting because I have a lot of people who are in open relational theology who endorse the book or like my work. So for example, Thomas J. Ord went ahead and endorsed it. And um, I was included in a recent book that he helped to edit on open and relational theology essays. Um, so there's, there's a lot of uh, points of contact. I wouldn't necessarily uh, put myself in that camp. And that's both because I'm not, not really studied enough on open theism in order to um, think about exactly how I consider it. I was recently in a conversation in one of my classes with another professor and we were discussing this. But I definitely think that God uh, grows with humanity. But at the same time, the whole concept of theomachy or God fighting or saying no to God assumes as a basic construct that God's character is unchanging. So, uh, you know, when I say God grows with humanity, there are limits to how I perceive that growth is. And so I'd say that probably the way that I understand the dynamic ability of God to grow with humanity is more limited to the aspect of adapting to humanity and working with the consequences of a world that has its own thoughts. But I wouldn't extend that to the idea of God himself learning something new about himself. So I would probably draw the line there and say that God is who God is and God commits to remaining who God is eternally. And so there isn't something like, well, God got it wrong back then, but now he's figured out. I would allow that God sees his creation doing new things and does new things in response. So for example, a great, a great possibility for this is God starts humanity according to Genesis in a garden, but by the end, he's got them in a city. But it was Cain's descendants that created the city. Cities are, are a creation of sin according to Genesis. And yet, God adapts that as the home of human beings. God does not say, oh, I've got to take you all back and move you to this original perfection I planned. 
he adapts his perfection to humanity. And I think that you could describe that as part of the growth of God. And so if that was the idea, then I'd go with that. But it's not the case that I would personally be okay with the idea of God himself and understanding his own character changing. I'm not saying that that's what Greg Boyd and others argue. I don't know enough. But I know that there are popular perceptions of open theism that people have where they might think that they could go that direction. I'm just clarifying that I don't find myself in that camp. No, I no, I totally get that. I, I I'm like you, not studied enough in it. I have had conversations with Thomas and Mark Harris and some others, and I find myself persuaded somewhat by what they yeah. say. And I, I, well, there's definitely good cases they have. More along the lines of um, not 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 that God is mutable, you know, not that God changes, but that the future is not carved in stone. Um, I, I find it a, a welcome relief to any kind of predetermined, you know, any kind of like determination um, that says somehow we're just walking along paths that were carved out for us and we have no choice in the matter. I like Slavoj Zizek's way of describing um, when he tried to talk about why he believes in predestination. And he talks about it, and, and this ties in with this question of like the future and, and is it something we choose to make happen or is it determined? Um, he, when he talks about predestination, he ties it in with love, the experience of love. And Zizek is like, Okay, so love is a choice, and yet you experience it as not a choice, as inevitable. When you fall in love, you can't claim that it wasn't your choice and somebody bound you to it. It was your choice, and yet you experience it as something that you could not have otherwise chosen. And so in that sense, I think Zizek's understanding of predestination matches well to the idea of a future that's not determined, and yet we experience it as determined. If God is love and God's love um, is persistent, in that sense, uh, the future that love desires is, uh, you could say, an inevitable outcome, and yet it's also a choice. It's something that has to be uh, enacted. It's not something that's... um, automatically just determined that that's the way it has to be. But it's experienced in that way by us as an inevitability because of God being love. Hmm. Well, yeah, no, I like that. Go ahead, John. Well, I was just say one of the, one of the sections of open theism that I kind of grabbed onto is this idea that God requires our participation for things to happen. And I find that uh, that part for me is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I can see it as a connection to your book as well in saying no to God. And that's the idea that God is going to, within some of the examples you give of people saying no to God, right? Is this um, participation of us within the story. And it's almost like God is wanting us to kind of push back on some of this stuff. Like I said, Nat and I were kind of chit-chatting a little bit before you came on. And, you know, there are some really good examples you use of times when saying no to God is appropriate, I guess is the best word. Um, and how, in what way is that? I guess my question on it is, so you're saying that you believe that God is to a certain degree unchanging, right? So how does that work with this idea that God sets, sets forth, um, like this, system of events that then we as humans say no to. So how does that fit into this idea that God's not changing, but it kind of almost looks like he is? Right. This is a great question. I really didn't deal with it um, in the book that got published. I've been writing an academic version of the book. Yeah. And I definitely had to delve into that question. Like philosophically, how would this even work? Like, okay, so we see in the Bible evidence of it suggesting that, but what system would you have to assume to make sense of this logically? And so the idea in a sense is that... If you imagine, okay, that God is, let's say, God is love, God is who God is, and that's just what he is. And so you say, okay, God is the good, God is love. So the good and God are one and the same. That would seem to confirm, as I talk about in the book, Euthyphro's dilemma of, you know, are things good because God says so? So they're just arbitrarily connected to what God is. Um, assuming that God is good, then that's a good thing. But also, you know, is it something that is just intrinsically so? And so that's why the gods like, you know, what the gods do, because they are, in fact, good things. So with God in the Christian tradition being singular and being the good, what's interesting is when God enters time, something happens. You can reference God outside of the present. And that's a scenario that uh, is you know, unique, I think, to monotheism, once you assume that God is the foundation of reality and there's only one God, 
And so then you're dealing with the question of how would one talk about God? Well, okay, Moses sees God in Exodus 32 come to him with something that seems to him totally wrong as a suggestion. I'm going to kill everyone, start over things with you, make you powerful. And in that moment, God has acted different than who God is. Now that looks like God's changing. Now, Moses responds not by citing some sort of autonomous morality or saying that, you know, hey, wait a minute, uh, you know, um, these things are the true good and you're departing from them. But rather he argues from the perspective of what you've told me in the past, what you've committed yourself to be, who you say you are, and those are the reasons why this is wrong. So he seeks God as God has been and has stated he's been in the past to then critique what God looks like in the present moment. And God responds affirmatively. In fact, um, they continue to bicker through chapters 33 to 34 to the extent that finally Moses gets fed up with the arguing back and forth and he says, just show me your ways. Like, i.e. I, the sense is, um, I'm tired of arguing for what you should be. Uh, you either are what you are or you need to just show me what you really are because I'm, I'm done with this. this. This weird argument thing that we're doing here, it's, it's freaking me out. So then Moses, go, uh, Moses is told, hide in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to pass you by. You'll only see my, my backside. Everyone focuses on that whole element. But it's actually the speech that God gives that's really the most important, I think, part of that segment because it concludes the argument. God affirms, I'm long-suffering, I'm loving, I'm always giving mercy and forgiveness, yada, 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 yada. He pretty much paints a portrait that looks like what Moses was arguing for, but is not what God seemed to be doing in Exodus 32, 7 through 14. So then what you're left with is sort of like, okay, if this is now affirmed to be his ways, and that's what Moses affirmed he was, well, then what really changed? When you look at the Hebrew Bible, even though it says God does not change, like in Malachi, um, when you look at the times the Bible does use the same word to describe what God does, including Exodus 32, it's always in relationship to an action that's changing, what God is doing in response to a human being. But it's never applied to sort of God's disposition or character or his, his inner um, trajectory. It's always towards some action in the present, a strategy, something he's doing differently with the people in space and time. So what that leads you to kind of a position is to say, okay, well, when Exodus 32 says, and God changed his mind, right? given the use of that phrase elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible, and given the fact that God defends himself as being the one that Moses was saying, this is who you really are, it leaves you with the position that God changed what he was doing, but God didn't actually change who he was. So what ends up happening then is that God can present himself different precisely because the moment he presents himself in space and time with humanity, he establishes both who he's been, because there's a past him that everyone can, or at least each individual can recognize. And then there's the present test. In other words, the test or the moment of divergence where the individual has to determine, is this correct or is this not, is only possible once God has defined the rules. Once it's been set that this is the stability of who I am, now watch, I'm going to change. And in that moment of looking like he's going to change, mind you, he doesn't actually change because he never actually does the thing that he's saying. He just simply suggests, this is what we're going to do, or I'm going to do this. And then, you know, for example, even in Genesis 32, when God attacks Jacob and they're wrestling, God does not defeat Jacob. God does not end up killing Jacob. God does not actually succeed at the thing that's happening. Rather, it provokes the conflict in which Jacob is wrestling and Jacob is forced to take action. So the change never occurs for God. Rather, uh, the change is perceived as a possibility. And what that, I think, is in agreement with is sort of the position that early Christians have always had about Jesus, that Jesus um, always had the possibility of failing 
his 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 role uh, in as being Messiah, that he could always have been conquered, that it wasn't an inevitability, but a great risk that Jesus took by becoming human being and by coming to the earth and doing what he did. There was great faith on the part of God, trust in humanity, trust in the divine as a Jesus was a human being. And I think that that idea also can be applied to the idea of how God speaks about himself in the Hebrew Bible. Notice that he's always making covenants, swearing on himself. I swear, you know, that I will do these things. Well, why does he need to swear on himself? Why does he have to promise and commit? And I think what that, if you take that literally, what it suggests is that because God has entered space and time, is in covenant with humanity, um, God, while he has the ability to depart, he has the freedom to not be who he is. At the same time, it's like um, a lover having the ability to not be a lover to their lover. It's a theoretical possibility, but in actuality, it's an impossibility. You know, in the same sense that uh, if you truly love someone, the fact that you could pick up a knife and murder them is a theoretical possibility. But because you love them and because you're committed and you're within this ethical frame, it's not even a possibility. So it's, it's, it's a paradox possible, but also impossible. And I think that in that sense, the idea that God can depart from who he is is an impossibility. But it is a theoretical possibility that allows him to present this test to people, to present himself as opposite in order for the purpose of reminding them and teaching them, this is who I've always been, and you don't know me unless you know that. And that seems to be the key in each of these stories, is that they always come back and affirm, what you've been is I know who you are. And they won't let go of that, despite the perceived divergence that they're witnessing. Yeah, it makes me wonder too. I mean, John and I, were we have talked about this a few times over the years, but it almost seems like God, so then within that construct, we're looking at God almost, oh, maybe, oh, so let's, let's talk about Abraham and Isaac. Let's talk about God suggesting the possibility that Isaac be sacrificed by, by his father. To me, that sets up a test. Not so much. So I think the faith test that we've always been told that was would would uh, would Abraham simply obey and just go through with this murder, or would he? I think the better test would have been if he told God to go pound sand. No, not doing that. That doesn't seem like something you would do. Why would you require that of me? God's not a God of human sacrifice. Um, obviously, Abraham doesn't necessarily know this yet, but it seems like a point of divergence, like you just said, where where Abraham could have easily said actually, no, I don't think that's a great idea. You know, and maybe God might've been like, yes, okay. <laughs> I think you get it. I'm not like the pagan gods that you have, you know, been accustomed to to worshiping. I, I suggested that to a pastor once or twice and he just about threw me out of his church, but I still think it's a great idea. I mean, I, li- I like the... I, I don't know. I just, I like the, I like the idea of wrestling with God. Yeah. No, I mean, in the second chapter of my book, I reinterpret the story of Genesis 22 and, and think of it differently. I'm one of, I'm, I'm one of at least I know three different scholars in the past few years that have come out with radical revisionary ways of reading it, uh, along with Dr. Arlene Drew and, uh, Dr. J. Richard Middleton, who just came out with a book on it called Abraham Silence, um, in which he argues that Abraham failed the test. Um, but then the, the angel serves as a, as a second test. Now I, my interpretation is a little different than that, but it's an agreement <laughs> in the sense that, um, the traditional way of reading this story doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. Like, okay, so first of all, th- if the test was just about obedience towards whatever God says, including killing your firstborn, this is a weird test in the Israelite tradition, um, certainly for the later Jewish readers to be taking in. Because uh, according to the Hebrew Bible itself, Moabites and other people around Israel were doing this too. And would do this, you know, uh, at a big battle or something that they needed to prove their fidelity and loyalty to get their God's favor. So in a sense, if a Christian is going to be defending this as like, this was an ultimately good test, it is a test that a Moabite can and has, uh, you know, succeeded at, which makes Abraham's faith uh, really on par with the not, other not, pagan nations. Yeah, so it's not, not spectacular, right? It does not, it does not go beyond <laughs> them. So, right. you know, that's a strange kind of idea if you want to, you know, hold on to that. Um, the other thing is, it's also strange because in Abraham's day and age, there's really not a good reason or rationale for why you would reject child sacrifice. So most people would think like, oh yeah, I just, you know, 
I love my child and all these. Yeah, but you know, this was a different time. You start reading how people treated children back then, how they perceived them. We forget how anachronistically we're applying our modern ethics of how we perceive family units and the value of children and then putting them back in time. Like even some scholars who still go with the traditional view end up realizing this and they have to say, well, really what Abraham's being tested on isn't his love for Isaac. They'll be like, well, it's because he won't get the covenant blessing because Isaac's dead. And so they even recognize that like, it might be more selfishly oriented in regards to the utility of Isaac than it has to do with anything to do with their like childlike fatherly love. So even the traditionalists can sometimes get, you know, recognize that this isn't exactly our system of morality that we're dealing here with. But the real problem is if you recognize that it's not such a a moral issue yet. And in fact, we know from Jeremiah that the Israelites were practicing child sacrifice on behalf of Yahweh. And there's verses in Exodus that hint around at this as well. For example, I think it's in Numbers where God says, you have to dedicate the Levites to me because otherwise I would need to have every one of your children killed on my behalf. The Levites are the substitute. They exist, so I don't need to, you know, kill your kids. Um, you know, that, that tells you that there's a, a, a theory in Israel about child sacrifice where it just made sense that they should be giving their kids and they need some reason or rationale for why they won't. And of course, I'm stating that in a very historical way. If somebody doesn't really like historical criticism, you can rephrase that uh, from a different standpoint and say, well, uh, God knew that they understood these things in that way. And so he condescends himself in order to reach them where they are. However you want to perceive it, the answer is still the same. The Israelites understand child sacrifice as uh, normal. So when you think of that, it's like, okay, so if this is all average and expected, and Jeremiah is condemning the Israelite, the Judeans in his day for... Um, committing these child sacrifices and having Yahweh say, it has never come into my mind to ever, ever ask you to do such a thing. You know, when you have that kind of level of rhetoric and you realize, okay, so this is the minority position that Yahweh doesn't want child sacrifice. A lot of people there think this makes some sense. You go back to Abraham's period in the narrative. This is, Abraham's come out of idolatry. He's come from a pagan nation. He was surrounded by these ideas. He has not had a Moses Mount Sinai situation. Uh, so he doesn't know any of these things. You wouldn't presume he should have any understanding of it. And if it's even hard for the later Israelites who do get God's laws against this to give up the idea, how much more for Abraham, who has no laws to speak of, to think of that? So then if that's the issue, Here's where the real problem with the story comes. In order to have the traditional view, you have to read the story of Abraham and Isaac in a way that pretty much uh, ignores certain aspects of it. So when Abraham and Isaac are about to go up the mountain and he tells the servants to wait, the slaves to wait down at the mountain, he says, well, the boy and I are going to go up and the boy and I are going to come back down after we worship. Now, most traditionalists who are commenting on this story are going to argue Well, he's lying to them because he doesn't want them to interfere. This is stupid, in my opinion, for two reasons. Uh, I know it's not really academic to say stupid, but it sounds silly. It sounds so silly. One, why would slaves dare to disobey their master? Mm-hmm. It would take something really strongly morally convicted, I would think, to, to have them right. risk their and behalf. And being cojones. Right? Sorry. And child <laughs> sacrifice at this period of time is just not that issue. Right. It's, not, it's not like today. So the motivation's not there. And the, the problems that would be welcomed on them are not there. And then why does Abraham lie about something that isn't that controversial? That wouldn't strike somebody as like impossible. So that it just doesn't make sense. It sounds way too anachronistic. So then the only real other option, tangible, is just accept and believe that Abraham's telling the truth. That he's, he really does believe that he's not going to kill Isaac. And it's right there in the text. He's telling, just believe Abraham. Don't assume he's lying because there's no way he's going to uh, disobey or not kill Isaac or believe that it won't happen. Just assume he is. And when he goes up the mountain with Isaac and Isaac goes, where is the sacrifice? And he says, well, you know, God will provide it. You know, then they go, oh, well, he's lying to his son because he doesn't (laughs) want him to, to, to run away. Okay, this is silly, again, on two reasons, okay? If you assume he's a child, like really little kid, then okay, maybe. But even the narrative doesn't say that Isaac struggles over getting bound. 
Like there's no, there's no description of a struggle. And later rabbinic tradition argues that he's like an adult. So if he didn't struggle when they're at the top of the mountain, why would it be necessary to lie to him while they're walking up? I mean, so that part's silly based off the traditionalist logic. But then also it's silly because you have another possibility that agrees with the, the statement he made to the servants, which is to say, he really believes God will provide the sacrifice. He's not going to offer it to, he's not going to offer Isaac. So if you accept those two statements at face value as true, and you don't try to come up with some anachronistic way to explain how he really assumed he was needing to lie, when they get to the mountain and the angel calls out and says, stop. First of all, how many people don't notice? It was Elohim that spoke to him in the beginning and gave him the test. It's an angel who's speaking to him now at the end. Now, yes, the angel speaks like God, because that's what angels do in the Old Testament. But it's still an angel. It's not Elohim directly in a vision or dream or something. So, and, and the angel saying something opposite of what God told Abraham to do before. So now you have to take a step back and say, well, didn't Paul, I mean, I'm being a little anachronistic here, jumping to the New Testament, but it's a sentiment (laughs) I think we can recognize here. Paul goes ahead and says, you know, if anyone comes to you with a different gospel than we've given you, even an angel, you Mm. are to declare them an anathema and reject them, right? So a good Pauline Christian should be like, hey, wait a minute, Abraham, that was an angel that told you to do something opposite of what God said to do. Like, you know, how are you to break the, the, the command of God because an angel's come to you? In fact, this idea is even expressed in the apocryphal life of Adam and Eve in the uh, Latin Vita text version. I don't know if you guys have read that, but essentially it's the story of um, when Adam and Eve get thrown out, this Christian document uh, looks Christian potentially. It basically tells of how Adam tells Eve, stay in the river over here for this many days. I'll be in this river for this many days. And then maybe God will will give uh, repentance to us. Satan comes over to Eve and it's like as an angel of light and goes, hey, God's accepted you early. You can get out of the river now and go to your husband to let him know the good news. So Eve, tricked, gets out of the river, disobeying her husband's orders, goes to Adam, and then Adam's like, Eve, you did it again. You screwed <laughs> us up. You disobeyed God, and now you disagree- disobeyed the embodiment of God to you, me. And okay, now we're all screwed thanks to the fact that you as my wife can't obey me. And I mean, the, the whole message seems to be essentially the argument that you know, you're know you supposed to obey your, your husband like you should have obeyed God in Eden. Um, so it's a very patriarchal message. But the point is, don't listen to an angel, even when you don't know that it's Satan. If it disobeys your husband or God, don't listen to it. So like this idea is certainly prevalent in the first few centuries of Christian history. So certainly a Christian could read this and go, well, that's kind of problematic. Why is the angel contradicting what God said? Whether or not early Israelites would have, I assume they could have, because after all, in Deuteronomy, there's all these warnings about prophets. If they say something opposite of what God has told you through other prophets, you should disobey them and not listen to them. So there is in the Old Testament even this idea of consistency. Don't diverge from God's command. So then what do you do about the fact that the angel says, stop this? Should not Abraham, if he's truly being obedient, have continued? (laughs) said, I'm going for it. God told me, you're an angel. I'm not going to be deceived. But he doesn't. He stops and he sees a ram and he takes the ram instead, quoting the text. The angel does not tell him to take the ram. He takes the ram. He makes the decision of how to do this. And so what that leaves you with is a point of, there are two voices, and that's really important. There's the voice in the beginning, kill your son, and the voice at the end that says, do not. And when the angel praises Abraham for killing the ram, it says, "You have because you have obeyed my voice, you, I know that you are faithful. What voice is he referring to? Most commentators never take the time to realize there's the two voices. There's the voice at the beginning, voice at the end, kill or do not kill. Which one is he being praised for? Obviously the second one, because that's the one that he obeyed. He disobeyed the first order when he didn't fulfill the desire to fulfill the killing. So what you have in this story is, um, I think, the epitome of what Genesis 18 was working up to when Abraham's arguing with Sodom and Gomorrah. Because in that story, Abraham does not have faith that God is going to be just. 
you know, shall not the judge of all the earth do justice. You know, you're not doing your job. I think you need to be doing this differently. He's very much edgy when it comes to Sodom and Gomorrah's fate. And he has to get into an argument with God. But what's funny about that argument is that it always gets like more humble. Every time God says, sure, Abraham kind of backs up with, okay, let me speak once more. Okay, well, if you would just let, I'm just but dust and ashes, but let me say this. And he, it's almost as if Abraham's learning, oh, you are just, and you listen to me, and you're better than I thought you were. And in fact, at the beginning of that story, God tells the angels before they're sent to Sodom, he says, I am going to have to do what I'm about to do in order to teach Abraham the ways of justice and righteousness. It's a testing thing. So, for me, the fact that Abraham doesn't put up a fight in Genesis 22, and this is where I disagree with uh, Middleton in his new book. For me, the reason he doesn't disobey is because he has faith. He has reached the summit. He knows God so well that even though he doesn't have any reason from a rule or from a statement of God to know that this is an anathema to him, he knows in his heart after what he went through with Sodom and Gomorrah, God's not going to have me kill. This is not what's going to happen. So sure, I'm going to go along with this like a game of chicken with two cars heading towards each other. But I know you're going to swerve. I know that you're going to swerve. I have no reason, you know, theologically in some rule to, to know that for sure. But I know you enough to know that this doesn't make sense. But instead of fighting you about it, I'm just going to affirm it over and over again to my servants, to my child. And in fact, um, a scholar named Omri Bohm, who wrote a volume with TNT Clark um, on this story, he argues that the angel speeches are secondary, that they were added in by a later editor who was uh, uncomfortable with the fact that in the earlier reconstructed version that Bohm offers, uh, you don't have verses 11 through 12. And so literally Abraham gets up there and he sees the ram immediately. And without an angel telling him not to kill the son, he offers the, the ram instead. And God approves. And so in, in a sense, Bohm offers an even more radical reading, not just that he has two voices to listen to, but without any direct offering of God countermandering his speech, Abraham makes the valiant decision to take the ram and to affirm that because he kept promising and saying, no son, some God will provide the offering. He sees the ram on the mountain, he goes, God provided. And he doesn't have to, he doesn't have to sit there and wrangle his fingers and go, oh no, oh no. He just takes the ram. Whether Bohm's reconstructed idea is the best one, the point is increasingly, as seen through Middleton or Arlene Drew or myself, people are beginning to look back at the story and go, there's too many anachronistic ways we've read it. The story is not praising blind obedience. It's praising a very engaged, even doubtful, but doubtful in the sense of affirming a better faith in God approach to how to have a relationship with God. What made Abraham really different? It's that he knew God better than the Moabites did. What, what I like about uh, all of those versions is one of, one of the things that just takes away, and it's what I was raised in you know, when I was in church, was that this was always a crisis of faith, right? That this was Abraham's crisis of faith. And all of those versions agree or not, uh, they don't really give us any kind of idea that there is a crisis of faith. Either Either he believes that God is the God of the pagans where this is, this was just ex expected of God that he's going to want a child sacrifice. Or like you're saying here is that he always knew that this was not going to happen. Cause I think there's like this really weird theological gymnastics that happens at the end. If it's a crisis of faith and they have to throw in this idea that Abraham believes that he will kill his son and that God will resurrect his son. That's the best answer they can give you. Because like you say, he says that they're going to come back. He's going to come back with his son, right? Yeah. So there has to be some way that that's going to happen, even if he kills him. And that's that, oh, well, then God will just bring him back to life. God will resurrect him. And there's no, and from my understanding, there's no basis for that at all. So where they get that from is, is the letter of Hebrews which when it's thinking about and recounting the story, it states that as an idea, which made sense to Hebrews because in the period Hebrews wrote, it was about 200 or so years after the idea of resurrection became popular in Judaism. And now that's not to say that it's not true. It just means that 
somehow, we don't know how, maybe through some prophets that are anonymous, the idea of resurrection became common knowledge among the Jews, and they accepted it and understood it was orthodox teaching. But before that period in the Second Temple uh, period, it was not an idea in Israel. You do not find, you know, like Job says, humans fall down like trees and are never to rise up again, or Ecclesiastes, animals and humans are the same. They head to Sheol, and that's the end of their days. There, There is this sense of no resurrection hope, which made Israel quite unique in the period that it existed. But it's anachronistic to apply Hebrews' uh, view to the earlier period. Now, whether or not Abraham could have historically known those things, who knows? We don't have writings from Abraham's period. We have writings from the monarchy that are describing things that happened hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years before. So we can't speak to Abraham, but we can speak to what the Israelites believed when the story in Genesis was written down. And they did uh, believe that resurrection was not possible. So we know that for the first audiences and the people who wrote the story, they didn't have that in mind. So you can, like Hebrews, try to read it that way. But even if you read it with resurrection in mind, it still shows that Abraham's doubting God because God didn't say, I'm going to have you kill him and then I'll bring him back. Uh, he just says, I'm going to kill him. That's it. That's the end. And you're, you're going to do that. And so there's no hope that God gives. So the fact that Abraham, even in that version, would still think, no, that's not how it's going to end, tells you uh, something about the fact that God, that Abraham has an affirmation, a belief uh, in something better about God. So even the traditional approach has underplayed uh, Abraham's doubt, Abraham's affirmation of a better God, even in their version. Yeah, and it just seems like it seems like Hebrews, in particular, focuses in on and in, in, on on an obedience factor, right? And that was that was the test of Abraham's faith was would he be obedient? And and I love how you just described that because apparently he actually wasn't. But 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 the way the story's always been told is he was obedient even to the point where you know, and and of course that being an anachronism is problematic, right? Because then what we do is we further anachronize that by saying, and now what is God asking you to lay on the table? What are you withholding from God? We take our own sensibilities about that and say, yeah, we've applied that logic to our modern Mm -hmm. current situation. It becomes very toxic. I like what I like to say is it's not that Abraham is disobedient. It's not that Abraham's obedient. It's that Abraham is dis slash obedient. Yeah. Like imagine you dis slash obedient, you know, it's like you're saying it simultaneously. And I have an article I just had published recently that that is the same thing, the dis slash obedience of Abraham. It, it's it, You're arguing that it's simultaneous. He's disobedient in the sense of God in the present with the command that was given and obedient in the sense that his disobedience is rooted in his better understanding of who God is. Yeah. Well, I, I, man, I love that, man. That's giving, you give me a lot to chew on, a lot to think about. So I'm having a hard time formulating a question because I'm just going, <laughs> whoa, wait a minute, hold up. Um, so I had an interesting conversation with, um, with Bradley Jersak not too very long ago. Um, we had his little Zoom call together and we talked about a few things. And, um, one of the things that he brought up rem- reminds me of some of the things that you were talking about in this book. So I kind of want to get your, your perspective on it. He said, isn't it funny, you know, that the people in the Bible whom, who seemed to have the most intimate relationship with God were the ones who were willing to say no or the ones who are willing to argue and wrestle. And isn't that such an important component to an authentic relationship, one where there is some give and take? And just curious what you what you think about about that. And I'd like to not, I'd just like to name drop Brad Jersak whenever I get a chance. So sure. if you're listening and, to Brad, and that's I can for you, name buddy. Drop, I can name drop that he endorsed the book and he's on, yeah, the, on the back cover. Uh, <laughs> but you know, he'll endorse anything except my book. He won't, he won't do that. So, but um, um, <laughs> You have a book? <laughs> about two thirds of the way through it. He's actually, I think he's actually going to write the forward. If I keep putting him on blast publicly, then uh, they'll have to follow through with it. But I, I think he's Absolutely. I do think he's going to write the forward. So, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, go ahead, man. No, no, I, 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 I don't know. I, I wouldn't be presumptuous to think that he didn't have these ideas before my book. Um, but the point is, is that, yeah, no, I think it is an important factor that in the Bible, you do have these stories of people who resist God and win that or, or they resist God and prove that God is exactly who they thought he was in order to resist the present vision they have of him. And that tells you a lot about what faith has to be. It can't just be a blind obedience. It has to be very much an intentionally um, engaged 
and really um, almost like exactly the metaphor of relationship. You know, you have to know your spouse, you have to know your partner, you have to know your friend. If you don't know them deeply and intimately, then you can't figure out uh, who they really are, despite sometimes what they might say. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like someone says, "Oh yeah, I'm doing great," and you go, "No, you're not." Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. How dare you say, how dare you presume to speak on behalf of another person and tell them that their self-affirmation is wrong? You know, I mean, think about our modern sensibilities now in terms of, you know, the autonomy of the self and, and thinking about, no, you, you know, if somebody tells you this is what they are, then you, you accept that. And yet there's this fundamental level of understanding that people uh, lie. They, they, they disguise their true feelings. They hide what they're experiencing. And it's only if you truly know them that you're able to recognize the deception. And in fact, the person who's trying to deceive actually secretly wants the deception to occur because they are like not to succeed. They want that. They say, yeah, I'm doing fine, but they do really hope deep down inside potentially, even if they don't articulate it, that their friend will recognize they're not. And in a sense, prove their friendship by pushing forward and trying to help them. Um, Zizek discusses this in regards to in a less, uh, less relational model to, um, to romance and eroticism, where Zizek argues in his philosophical works how, uh, you know, uh, women, uh, and, and I think this applies also to, to men, you know, uh, but it's it certainly more traditionally in history, it's been women where, you know, the female goes ahead and um, wants a game in a sense. Like it's a, you know, they want to have an on off kind of romantic tension in terms of, no, I, I don't want your time. But at the same time, yes, if you really want me, you should keep trying to, you know, pester me. But the problem is Zizek goes like, this is the dilemma. There are people who don't want that pestering. And then there are people who want the pestering. And that it's a game for them. It's not a game for the other. And so human beings are trapped in this weird paradox where we both say no, but we're inviting yes. And that's exactly what we see with God in Exodus 32. Moses, stay away from me. Do not interfere. But then as John Calvin, Luther, Ellen White, a number of people have uh, throughout, uh, you know, and scholarship have noted is what's really more of an invitation. No, get away from me, Moses. But yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if if you're a true prophet, you'll know that that's your invitation to jump on in here now. Um, And so, (laughs) you know, it's not it's not a simple thing. It's not like you just automatically can guess it. Um, You need to know the person. Why it's so dangerous with dating is you don't know that other person. They are the unknown. You can't determine or figure out right away, are they playing a game or are they serious? And that creates a tension. But with God, with relationships, you do know this person and you have a basis for figuring out, are they wanting you to go in further? Are they serious? They don't want you. And I think that's the key difference is you are dealing with a relationship in which you have the ability to know who God is. And that's why Moses and the others act. And I think as Christians, which is how I apply this obviously going forward, is when you think about how does this apply to the Bible and the way we read it, because it's one thing to talk about Moses and Jacob and all these characters, Abraham. How about when we read their stories? How do we embody the way that they think and act and talk when we're reading scripture? And it's when you do that, that you recognize, oh yeah, Uh, especially in our case as Christians, people who read the New Testament. You could do this as well with just the Hebrew Bible, but in particular speaking as a Christian, because you have Christ as the embodiment of who God is in human flesh, uh, you have a direct revelation of what God is supposed to look like in embodied form. Yeah, you have a responsibility that when you're reading the Hebrew Bible or when you're reading the New Testament and you see something that fundamentally is at odds with the trajectory of who Jesus is. Yeah, you do need to know Jesus, God, well enough to be able to say to that image of God you see there, no, I, I can't accept that. That is, that is wrong. And it's not being unfaithful to struggle and wrestle with that text and say, this disagrees with Jesus. That's the epitome of faith. You're doing what all these prophets in the Bible have done before. Yeah. So is that something that you bring to the table when you maybe like I, I you know, I, I wrestle with with violent passages in the Bible, you know, and I and I wrestle with with those kinds of images of God being retributive and being, you know, vengeful. And then we come along, we have Jesus who is the, you know, the exact representation of the Father. We have Jesus who is the perfect embodiment of God. 
and I have to reconcile those two images. You know, okay, one one a violent retributive God, one obviously the Prince of Peace who's telling us to love our enemies. All the while, he's apparently planning to roast all of his alive for all of eternity for whatever, you know, misdeeds they've committed. So is that fair then to bring that sensibility to the scripture and say, wherever I see those images of God that are in direct contradiction to the character of Jesus, I get to push back and say, yeah, I'm not so sure about that one. Yes, as long as you recognize that it's um, a wrestling match, uh, it's a confrontation. That's my favorite word for this because in a confrontation, you are confronted by and you confront the text itself. And as long as you're preserving that tension that the text has the equal right to push back against you like God did Jacob, but right. you have the right to keep pushing back against it as well. So you might, for example, be, it might turn out it's like Jonah where you lose you know, your <laughs> right. value system was opposite of God and God's having to instruct you through the wrestling match that this is not me. And you know that deep down inside and you've just been fighting for the wrong thing. You need to preserve the ability for the text to confront you. On the yeah. other hand, you have to preserve the ability for you to confront the text so that you can be like a Jacob who does say, no, you did not come to curse me. I want my blessing as you promised from the beginning. Uh, and you win because you affirmed who God truly is despite what you're seeing that looks so devastatingly menacing. And if you don't preserve that tension, you can run into the risk of uh, making scripture subservient to your own ideas of who Jesus is, because of course, none of us have access to a perfect understanding of who Christ is. We're always evolving in our view of him, growing in a deeper understanding. So there's always the ability for us to get it wrong. So you don't want to like idolize your own view and then make that a rule in which you'll always reject whatever the Bible says if it disagrees with you, because then you're basically the new Bible. On the other hand, you don't want to allow the Bible to overrule any of your understanding or or to ignore all the contradictions that could exist in tensions so that you avoid the wrestling matches, but also potentially lose sight of who Jesus is or who God's deeper revelation of his character is. So in keeping that tension, yes, if you're looking at a text and you're saying, now, wait a minute, there seems to be a fundamental divide between the trajectory Jesus is pointing in and this. Yeah, that's a good sign to say, no, this is a problem. And certainly, like, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. My denomination rejects the idea of an eternally burning hell. And it does so on very stark terms that to believe in an eternally burning hell is to believe God is like Satan. And right. if you believe God is like Satan, that makes the belief satanic. Right. So that um, such a doctrine to present God in such a way uh, is an anathema for Christian theology. So it's very important. doesn't mean that you're denying there's a judgment. doesn't mean you have to deny that there's the idea that people get their just desserts. It doesn't, any of those things you can wrestle with. But a view of God that paints him like Satan suggests that you have fundamentally not confronted the uh, revelation of who God is in Christ. And you fundamentally misunderstood him to the degree that the people in Capernaum misunderstood Jesus when they said, well, you do what you do because you're informed by Satan. Right. And Jesus right. says, well, you've committed the unpardonable sin. What's the unpardonable sin in that story? It's that they see good, they see God's image, and they say, no, that's evil. And so if they saw evil, they'd say, well, there's God's image. So if when you're viewing hell, you think, well, there's the beauty of God, you're, I think you're dangerously close to the unpardonable sin. You, because your value system is turning so far upside down. It, you know, it's not like, I'm not saying people who believe in eternally burning hell are having uh, unpardonable sins. I'm saying that when someone's so committed to hell as a doctrine that they're writing, you know, and praising how this view is right. yeah. so beautiful and so righteous. Yeah, I think that they are coming close to that problem where they're doing the reverse of the people in Capernaum. They're seeing something horrible and evil and they're saying, no, this is right. If they have zero tension in themselves and they can say, yep, this is beautiful. Yeah, you can't help but think that that could translate into something ethically horrible on earth. If they can view God doing that to humans, how might they view themselves and leadership right. doing to other people? We saw that as well with, you know, the early Protestants were burning people at the stake, just like the Catholics were burning uh, Protestants at the stake. Um, they disagreed on who their victims were, not on the uh, methods. Right. Uh, and so that's something we have to be aware of. And yes, there needs to be a healthy confrontation. Yeah, no, love it. Yeah, there were there was two, two uh, stories I was going to bring up as like kind of, 
wanted to get your opinion on one. It was Jonah, and you did a pretty good job explaining that one. Because in that story, I mean, it seems like Jonah says no, but God forces his hand into a yes, right? So, well, Jonah never actually agrees at the end. I mean, right, Jonah just right, kind of sits there right, and stares right. at God. But Jonah himself states during the story, "I knew that you were going to want to forgive them." Right. And I said no because I think you're wrong. Right. Right. And and what it shows is a fundamentally polar opposite value system that Jonah right. has embodied, opposite of what he knows God's system is. Yeah. And that's precisely why his no fails. The kinds of things people succeed at are the kinds of things you'd never think that God would be resistant towards. Right. And the things and the battles in which uh, they lose are the battles that usually have to do with things we already ex- know or expect that God's against. Uh, and that's the secret. If you're fighting for God's character, then you recognize it's a test and you're doing it right. When you fundamentally disagree with God's character, you end up getting into battles with God that you can't help but lose. So the the other story, which I mean, I'm kind of playing devil's advocate because I don't I don't I don't hold a very literal version of the story anyway, which would be the, the story of the flood, where this would be a good example of where maybe Noah should have said no. Because if he knows the true nature of God and he seems to, that this seems to go against God's idea of, you know, doing harm to a mass amount of people. So I know we're running out of time because we're coming up at the end, but how do you, how do you acknowledge or how do you even come across, how do you even come close to explaining this version where Noah doesn't even seem to have a problem with the extermination of basically the whole human race. Well, the, the first thing is to recognize, and of course, I don't spend as much time in this book particularly discussing this. I do in the, the next one I'm writing. But the first thing is to recognize that the Bible has a diversity of voices. Biblical scholarship points it out time and time again. And there are disagreements. So as much as there are these stories about people that are arguing with God, there are also stories in the Bible that would teach it as an anathema. Like in uh, the book of Kings, you've got a story in which there's uh, these prophets and one prophet comes to another prophet and says, bloody me up, strike me, bloody up my face. And the prophet, the other one goes, no, what's wrong with you, dude? Like, I'm against violence. Like, I'm not going to do this. And the the prophet who asked to be bloodied up says, because you didn't bloody me up, you're going to get eaten by a lion. That's God's punishment too. He goes up to another prophet, says, bloody me up. The other prophet's like, oh yeah, I'm not going to get eaten by a lion. Starts doing it. (laughs) And then, um, you know, the guy all bloodied up goes to the road. Uh, There's a lion chomping down on the prophet. um, And uh, one of the kings of Israel comes over to, and, and he doesn't recognize the prophet. And so the prophet plays a game, word game, in order to give a message of woe to the, the king. And um, so you realize, oh, the only reason he needed to be bloodied up was so that he wouldn't be recognized. But the story's intent is to say that you can't argue and you can't question what a prophet tells you. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you'll get killed. So even though there was a reason, even though the prophet could have just told the reason to the other prophet, uh, the moral of the story is you just do it because God said so. Mm. And you should never fight back or argue or you'll die. And there are stories like this all over in the Hebrew Bible. Here's the important point. Yes, there's two contradictory voices, but rules of logic do apply in theology. So a universal rule isn't universal if there are an, is there, if there is even one exception. So in the case of thinking about the idea of arguing with God, even though there are texts in the Bible that would lead you to believe that you can never argue with God, the fact that the Bible affirms that there are cases where people do argue with God and win, that means that it's not a universal rule that you can't argue with God, which means mm. that essentially those texts really lose their value for what their argument is. The wow. texts that defend arguing with God win because that now has to become the center because if you can do it, you have to know the rules and understand how to do so. So logic helps us to recognize that even though there's this diversity, there is a way to prioritize and create a hierarchy of theology within the Bible for how to apply these texts. You would not apply the universal rule of not arguing with God over the exceptions of people who did. Now, with note to Noah, that story is one of those cases where Probably the authors who wrote it didn't even think of that. I think in the Talmud, there might be a case of somebody who wrote or gave the opinion that, you know, why did Noah do what, what uh, Abraham did with Sodom and Gomorrah? I think there's something like that. People have thought about this issue, obviously, before. But when we're trying to think of like the original author who wrote that story, probably didn't cross their mind, right? Think about the, the assumptions. The assumption is that God can repent 
because he repents of having made humanity. And then he's, he's also seemingly repentive of having tried to destroy the world. But what's important is, is that a lot of scholars think that when that story was finally redacted and put together, it was in Babylon during the exile. And in Babylon, a lot of the Jews were having to write out the uh, Akkadian versions of the Noah story that had to do with like Utnapishtim and, and had to do with the idea that the gods were angry at how noisy humans were. And so they wiped them out. And one of the gods had saved uh, uh, Utnapishtim, the Noah figure. And, and so that's how people survived. The Jewish version of that story is very different. The Jewish version is humans were wicked and violent. God saw how much destruction they were wreaking on, on humanity and animals. And God was like, okay, the world's so screwed up. We have to fix this. We have to, to stop this. And yet also God is so loving that he recognizes that human beings actually can't really fix this issue in the sense that you'd hope. And so he's going to have to be long suffering and work with them. And it says he puts his bow in the sky. And that's really important because in the Hebrew Bible, God's bow is his, his destructive weapon. So when God is like, like Job talks about God flinging his arrows at Job, right? That's the idea of God's got his bow and he's shooting arrows. When God says, I'm putting my bow in the sky as a sign that I'll never destroy the world. It's like God saying, I give up being a warrior God. I'm not that kind of God. Now, if we take this story and recognize the highlights that the author is trying to combat the uh, prevalent view of God as a warrior. He's trying to combat the idea that God is a God uh, who might just be annoyed with human beings, but no, gives it an ethical orientation. If you see what he's doing to change the popular perceptions of the story as Jews were being exposed to in Babylon, then you can appreciate the highlights. But at the same time, you have to recognize that he was dealing with a story that was widely assumed um, no one was going to sit around and say, well, no, you know, he should have argued with it. Everyone accepted the flood did happen. So the issue wasn't, okay, how do we make the character Noah have a different story? The issue was how to understand what they believed did happen and how to understand God's role in it. And the trajectory of the Noah story in the Jewish scriptures points to Christ even if it does so imperfectly, even if there's elements of the story that we wrestle with and say, okay, hold on, what about this? What about that? The trajectory is much more pointing in the direction of the New Testament and the Gospels in the Old Testament story than it does if we look at the stories as they are in Babylon and elsewhere. Those do not point in that direction because they assume immoral gods who take action against human beings for frivolous reasons. And I think that that's important to recognize the trajectory and the orientation and not get too lost on the details. But we should, and I think it's right as Christians, to recognize those problems and to always make sure that they are under the purview of the gospel as a whole. Yeah, no, man, that's <laughs> great. Man, I love it. I love all of that. I had I, heard some people argue in the past, and I, I, I need to do some more digging on this, um, that in Genesis 9, when, when it, you know, when, when they say, and it says that God placed his bow in the sky, um, that we'd misinterpreted that as a rainbow, even though the same, I guess the same Hebrew word is used for rainbow as it is for bow or possibly could be interchangeably used. Uh, I think it's interchangeable personally. Yeah, I, th so I think I, the point is the rainbow is supposed to be his bow. Yeah. So kind of that imagery though, where we've kind of, we, we end up latching onto one image of, you know, anyway, it, it, it's an interesting concept. I like, I like that very much. Um, my sense of the Bible as a whole over the last several years is, is that it, you know, it, it all has a trajectory. There's a, there's an arc to the story. And so I'm, 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 I'm concerned primarily with where it lands. Um, obviously, I, I'm interested in how it gets there. It lands on you. Yeah. That yeah. It, it doesn't land in the New Testament. It just points you in a continued journey. Or as people like to say, uh, it's not the destination, it's the journey to get there. Right. And, and so because life is contingent and it's constantly changing and evolving, and because the world and people are constantly growing, the goal keeps shifting. And that's okay. Because as Jesus said, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit, the comforter to guide you into all truth, which I could not give you now. And that promise does not end with the apostles uh, at Pentecost. That doesn't end with the first few centuries of Christians. It continues. And so, you know, it's not 
the Holy Spirit will guide you to the destination, right, right. but into the truth that continues to need uh, evolution and continues to need uh, a Christ-centered focus continually. Yeah. Well, and I love the fact that what that allows us to do then is to wrestle with Scripture, not necessarily expecting resolution. Like, like we can preserve that tension, right? We can learn to actually live sort of comfortably within that tension because I don't, I don't know that there's, there's certainly no nifty little trick that comes along and just goes, allows it all to line up and make total sense. So, um, it, it, it aligns itself more with my, where I'm at in general with, with, with my faith anyway, which is I'm learning to be uncomfortable with being uncomfortable or being comfortable with being uncomfortable. You know, I'm learning to be content with not always having the answers. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm learning to enjoy the questions more than, than pat answers for sure. So, um, a book like yours comes along and I'm really, man, I'm, I'm eager to read the next one. Is that, that going to be just, are you going to do a, um, you said it was a more academic. So book, I have right? several. So I have, I have, um, a book. I have the academic version, which is right now, uh, fighting with God, a theology of confrontation. Um, and I've been trying, it's, I'm so busy currently. That's hard to find time to finish up working on it. But then I have another popular work, which is called subversive inspiration. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and, uh, and so that one as well is, is in the works. So we'll, we'll see, uh, in terms of time, but when you're doing your PhD and teaching and, and also trying to publish lots of academic articles and, yeah. and you got classwork and other stuff, it, it, you do find yourself pressed for time. And yeah. But this is why this is the pursuit of the young because you have boundless energy, apparently. And the, <laughs> <laughs> people just realistically know like, I have uh, to. <laughs> like, F that, man. I'm going to go get a nap. And uh, I'll, I'll write some of this tomorrow. Um, oh, sometimes so. that, that, that happens. Sometimes it's just like, no, I'm turning on Call of Duty. That's it. There you, <laughs> go. there you go. Turn the brain off and turn them. Yeah, I get it, man. Well, hey, I, I really hate to cut it. Um, I wouldn't say short. We've had a really good conversation, man. I, man, I enjoyed this. Um, and you've given me a ton to think about, which I always really, really appreciate. If you guys get a chance, man, make sure... And check out Matthew's work. I'm sure we'll we'll link to all his stuff in the in the show notes, uh, links to his books, obviously in his articles and and places where you can find his other work. But man, check him out. This is I'm sure just the tip of the iceberg of uh, all the great stuff that he has to offer. So, um, and man, if I anyone just, needs to find if if they're like, oh, you know, what am I supposed to search for? I mean, you can literally go to saynotogod.com. Gotcha, and you'll get perfect. like all the options for where to buy it. But it, you can find the book saying no to God at any uh, retailer, any, any bookstore. Uh, you should be able to find it. It may not be on the shelves anymore at, you know, your right. local Barnes but Noble, but Barnes Noble can order it, you know, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely do it. Do it. Buy the book, support our guests, man. We appreciate yeah. it, man. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to hang out with us. Uh, thank you for having me. It's been a wonderful conversation. I appreciate that very much. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.